My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley, and today we will be going into, like I promised last time, Genesis 10 through 11. We'll be starting today in verse 10, going through verses 1 through 5. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, or Javan, uh, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togermah. The sons of Javan, or Javan, however the heck you want to say it, Elisha, Tarshish, Kitim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. Now, when we're going through this list of names for the genealogy, I will just go ahead and put this little PSA out there. We're not going to be covering every single one of them. Uh, There are many people throughout the years. I mean, Josephus is probably our earliest recorded who try and go through, hey, this person right here corresponds to this nation here. Their people settled here, but not everyone has one like we can 100% lock down where they ended up at. I'll do my best to point out the ones that we do. And if I miss one along the way, I miss one along the way. It's just how it goes. So Gomer, going through this list here, is commonly believed to have his family end up in the Anatolia region. That's kind of Turkey. And they ended up later on leaving that area, and some scholars believe they ended up becoming the Germanic peoples of Europe, and his sons are believed to have ended up becoming the Scythian people who lived around the Caspian Sea. Uh, They were known as, you know, horsemen. Some Greeks really saw them as barbarians. They were archers. Uh, Some people even give credit to possible ideas of the Amazons coming from the Scythian people. Very fascinating group. Next up, we have uh, Magog, Tubal, and Meshach, who ended up in what we would call Russia, just uh, the tribes went up that way. Madai is believed to be the progenitor of the Medes and possibly had descendants who went to India as well. That's one of the things with a little asterisk beside there. Maybe that's possible. We don't know. And uh, Javan is associated with Greece and his sons ended up settling in that same area. So we see little Greece, Cyprus, and some believe as perhaps as as far as Spain, And that's if the idea of Tarshish, the person, also being the area later on that Jonah would go to, if that's where Tarshish is, there's a lot of debate. Was it uh, in Spain? Was it in Italy? Was it in Libya or another part of the northern African coast? We don't know. So that's that. Now, you may note here that each of these tribes is described as having their own language. So this event is not given in a strict chronological order to chapter 10. This can be to chapter 11, which happened sometime in the midst of this as humanity started with one language. And we'll get to that when we get to that. So that's it for those verses. Next up, we'll be going through verses 6 through 20. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama. Sheba and Dadan, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. 
The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh, in the lands of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the, can- uh, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as, far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their their excuse me, their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So by looking in the text here, we kind of see that Cush's family split into Africa and Babylon. Ham's son Egypt, also known as Mitzrayim, which is the Hebrew word for Egypt, settled Egypt uh, with Put settling Libya. Canaan, meanwhile, settled what would become the land of Canaan. But when we get to verse 8, we kind of have this brief interlude where yeah, these guys are mentioned as like being as existing and going potentially to these lands. But we get to Nimrod here for this, this brief little interlude talking about this one guy who just shows up out of nowhere. And by the way, before we go any further, I do need to preface that uh, Nimrod back in the day doesn't mean what it means right now. But it evolved into such, if you think of Nimrod as a stupid person or someone who's just not intellectually up there, that's because when you're in the old Warner Brothers cartoons, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck would call Yosemite Sam and Elmer Fudd Nimrods. And it was supposed to be like this ironic biblical reference due to them not being the best hunters. So they were contrasting him with Nimrod, who, as we see in the canon here, is a mighty hunter or a mighty man before the Lord. So there's that. So Nimrod actually meant something. It was supposed to be an impressive name back in the day. So we're not exactly told what makes Nimrod mighty, but recall how in Genesis 6, the mighty men of renown, it was a term that wasn't meant positively. So this likely ends up being the case for him as well. I mean, considering he rules over what what would be Babel, which will lead to the creation of the Tower of Babel, and that his name literally means we will rebel, I have this sneaking suspicion that he's not supposed to be viewed positively, but I can't like 100% say that is what the text is saying without further verses being out and say, yeah, that Nimrod guy, I mean, he was a mighty hunter, but he wasn't a good dude. We don't know for sure. But given what the text does say there, it seems to be, seems to suggest that he was someone who eventually led people into rebellion against God. And especially when we get to Genesis 11 later on here, kind of keep that in mind. Now, elsewhere in Ham's line come other enemies of the Israelites, like the Philistines and the Canaanites. So this right here is setting up things that will happen thousands of years later, hundreds of years, depending on who you're asking. I prefer the thousands, as you may well note. And just brings up like, hey, we all came from a common ancestor, but we can also pinpoint through these genealogies to the original audience of the people of Israel. Look, these came from here. This is setting up, okay, why is there such enmity between us? It was all the way in the past. From that curse of Canaan to this day, 
from these other people choosing to rebel against God. That's why the things are happening now in our present when this is being written by Moses. Then we'll go on from there to verses 21 through 32. Cushim, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arparshad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash, Arpashad fathered Shela, and Shela fathered Eber. To Eber were two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Jokhan. Jokhan fathered Amodad, Shelef, Hazar Mavath, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abamael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab, all these were the sons of Jokhan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And we see here, Shem's sons lead to the founding of the Persians, the Assyrians, the Lydians, Aramaeans, and ultimately Israel itself through Arphaxad, or Arphaxad, or how the heck you pronounce that name? I think I was doing fairly well until I started correcting myself. <laughs> and it's always bad, me reading uh, these names. It's just going to be real bad, because my pronunciation isn't the best. And as we go down through the genealogy, we get to uh, Peleg here who seems to have been born around the time that the events of chapter 10 occur, with his name being a possible reference to the division that occurred with the introduction of the other languages in the world, because Peleg or Peleg means division. And what more dividing thing could there be than, as we'll see in chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, the introduction of other languages which divide people and caused them to not be able to talk to each other like they were able to before all of this. And with that, we have the finale of the legacy of Noah's sons. Through them, the entire world was able to thrive once more. But also, through them, they were able to create a world that had forgotten the lesson of their predecessors leading into the Tower of Babel. And that will take us into Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there. It's going to go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and left off building the city. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, before we go any further, there's something important we do need to go on here. And that's, like I mentioned earlier, these events happen while in the midst of chapter 9, through those genie, excuse me, chapter 10, all those genealogies we were going through. One very important thing we need to learn while reading scripture is that not everything takes place in chronological order. Now, that goes contrary 
against what you and I expect of most stories. I mean, there are plenty of stories where it's clear for the most part, unless you're watching the first season of The Witcher, where, you know, hey, this is happening at this point in time or this is happening at this point in time. You, you can write in a structure in more modern times and say, hey, this is happening in 1872. This is happening in 1901. And a reader will know, OK, that's what's going on. We don't have that same luxury while reading a text in the past because they don't have the ideas or literary structure that we do. And God wasn't intending to write it that way because the original audience wasn't us. Not to say we weren't an intended audience, but we weren't the primary audience at that point in time. So this idea of writing more chronologically is more of a modern invention of storytelling. And we expect a narrative to, to take this path unless otherwise noted. Like there are plenty of people today who don't write, you know, straightforward chronologically. They don't have to. I don't write everything chronologically. But I make it a point so my readers aren't, you know, confused. Say, hey, this is a time travel story. So these events that happened in 1750, well, the scene beforehand, the time travelers were in 20 whatever, and now they're back there in 1750 or whenever the story takes place. This, however, is just setting out the genealogies first. And in the midst of that is when the events of chapter 11 happen. So when we look at the Bible, we need to make sure that we don't bring all of our modern ideas to it, because guess what? We weren't the first audience. This was written to a specific people at a specific time in history. So we need to understand the context of what is going on. But this doesn't exclude the fact that we are still intended as readers, just not the first. It doesn't make sense for Moses to write in a manner befitting us because we don't exist yet. And who knows what kind of ripples in history that would have had if God said, hey, write like this in a time where that's not the structure. Like, I think even... I'd have to look it up again. Even in Julius Caesar's like biography of autobiography, like he doesn't always go in chronological order. Like he sets things up here and then he goes in the past and he goes in the future, not the future, uh, the, what happened this year and that happened that year. And then he goes back to the past. And, like, it's all over the place. So it's typical of most past writing. So make sure when you're reading the Bible, no, it has never had chronological storytelling as its primary objective. But it is okay that it doesn't fit the uniformity we expect of today. And we need to be mindful of that when we read it. So when you're looking at the Bible, look for context clues. Wait, wasn't this mentioned before? I thought this already happened here. Go back. Oh, okay. I see. They're expounding on something that was mentioned here, but they didn't go into detail here because it didn't fit the purpose of the genealogies. There you go. Real simple. Just want to make sure like, you know, not everyone's been taught how to read the Bible well, like. I still screw up sometimes and I'll misunderstand some scripture and I'll use someone to, from a better commentary to go, okay, here's what it means. Oh, okay. That makes more sense than what I had in mind. There you go. But let us get to the Tower of Babel proper. Now, the idea of humanity building cities and protecting themselves isn't what God is angry at here. I've seen some people say that before. They're completely misunderstanding the text. God expects us to look after ourselves wisely. It is a wise thing to build a city, to build walls, to protect yourself from potential danger. God did not say, hey, Israel, I don't want you to have an army because I will fight all your battles for you. Even though God said he would fight battles for them, he also wanted them to fight for themselves because, you know, at that point in time, you need people to realize, hey, I have a stake in this. I just can't be lazy about life. You know, God's going to solve all my problems. That's not how he works. Instead, they were smart. These people around this time built a city, but they went a step too 
far. The idea was to build a monument that could help humanity reach God, you know, based on older primitive ideas, a, a logical idea in that point in time, too, without what we understand of the world today of, oh, oh, God is in the heavens. So we can if we just build a tower tall enough, we can reach him. Now, when God comes down here, we see that he's going, oh, no, they shouldn't be doing this. But he's not afraid of them. He's not afraid of them literally reaching them, n- nor was God jealous of their mutual accomplishments. It's not like, oh, man, I got to nerf humanity here because they're getting too close to being like me. No, this was something else at play here. Instead, we see that God rightfully figures out that humanity has gotten too bold for our own good, viewing ourselves as equal to him, and we were seeking him for the wrong reasons. That's not what he is in there for, especially when we're repeating the prideful sins of our ancestors. That whole, I'm going to control the world. I'm going to be like me. I'm going to enforce my will on the world, not God's will. My will be done. Well, no wonder he flooded the world once. And he, But God, wishing to keep his righteous covenant with Noah and his sons, instead creates the issue of multiple languages as a way to, hey, I can cause a little bit of discord here, a little bit of strife. That way, they don't know what they're saying to each other. This group will go here and settle that land. This group will go here and settle that land. And they won't be able to work together the way they could. Not that it's impossible for people to work together without having a common language. But can you imagine the immense confusion in that moment where suddenly uh, people give a name to like the the one uh, language that existed before this. There's like Proto-Hebrew and... Uh, Oh, there's some other like really hoity-toity terms they throw out there. But it's the idea that there was one language. You don't have a name for it at at this time. People have proposed others is my point there. And suddenly, well, your boy isn't speaking Proto-Hebrew anymore. Neither are you. You're speaking Aramaic. He's speaking Greek. And your neighbor over there is speaking Lakota. Uh, uh, How'd that happen? Because God knew what they were capable of together working as one. Recall that no other language existed on the earth except for this, whatever the language is called right now. And recall how humanity was able to work together to the point where God saw all their sins and said, "Mm, I'm going to have to send a flood and get rid of them. God doesn't want that to happen again. Doesn't want humanity to get too big for their britches. Sends the other languages so that they can't understand each other anymore forcing humanity to spread out so that they can live on the planet God created for them. Now, regardless of this decision, God knows they're not going to worship him. We didn't find, you know, from the European side of things, we didn't find uh, the Mapuche people in uh, South America, yes, worshiping God there. They had their own native religion. We didn't find any of the Polynesian people worshiping God. We didn't find the Maori worshiping God. We didn't find the great Zimbabwe empire worshiping God. We didn't find anyone, we didn't find the Britons worshiping God when the Romans came that way. No one was doing it, and God knew that was going to happen, but he did it anyways because he knew what humanity was capable when we're capable of working together. So he brought division there for our sake. It doesn't feel like one, but he understands better. He knows better. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a cruel mercy, but it is still mercy that we don't deserve. And as we look at the actual word itself, and I do need to say before we go any further, like, hey, how come all these names here like correlate to names we know today? Like, uh, that's just kind of 
fanciful and weird. Obviously, this was written by a human and not God because they were just talking about what they knew. Well, why do we use the names we have today because of records like this? Where we go, oh, okay, this is what the people themselves call him. But actually, we take a lot of precedence from the Bible itself. And that's why you see some translations use Egypt instead of Mitzrayim, because it's more familiar to us. But since the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Bible as well has been so important to us, we end up using terms today based on the history that we have with them in English. So, of course, they correlate to words we already know if we were already using that text in the first place. But also recall, this is the Hebrew's name for these people. So they probably had other names for themselves that just aren't recorded because it wouldn't make sense to the Hebrew audience. So the Hebrews call them this. Maybe the people themselves call themselves something different. And this happens all over uh, classical culture. It even happens now. Like, how should we spell Turkey right now? Should we call it something else? Here's how this country is represented in this language. Here's how it represented here. It's just linguistic differences. So... It sounds familiar to us because it's always sounded familiar to us because that's how the language works. Does that make sense? Hopefully it does. Otherwise, I wasted a lot of time there. <laughs> so it is called Babel in the ancient Hebrew, which means confusion. Now, obviously, with all these new people groups here, they would have had a different word for it. So even the people of Babel probably would have called it something different. But to us who are relying on the Hebrew text here, we understand the Hebrew word for uh, Babel, which means confused, helps us know, okay, the people were confused. It's probably not what it was called then, unless Hebrew was one of the languages that sprung up from this point in time. We don't know. Now, as we look at this whole thing, as, as we reach our more modern age, there's still lingual divides. Like, we're not united under one earth language. We're not the earthican people right here. It is... I mean, all over the place with languages. Like India alone has hundreds. That is one country with, granted, about 2 billion people at this point in time. Still, that's a lot. But we are at the point where we are organizing more common languages, more of the idea of, you know, the way Greek was used back in Roman Empire of being like a common trade language. We have English, we have Spanish, Japanese, Mandarin, Arabic, and more that are recognized by more people. This new cooperation has allowed many projects to be done that simply could not be done thanks to the differences between languages and different people groups. Now we aren't, like I said, we aren't anywhere close to having a universal language again, but the pride of man has, as it's always been, unified to the point where you view ourselves in the role of God or as equals to God, which can never be attained in our sinful state. And even with the redemptive sacrifice of Jesus, we are never going to be able to to become God, and neither should we wish for that. Only he is God. We are man created by God to worship him. To do anything else is to be sinful. So I'm not saying like we shouldn't ever seek to have a universal language. But I am reminded of stuff like this in a world where it has become far easier for people to work together to sin, that we should be careful. And that's one of the lessons that's trying to be taught here in the Tower of Babel. Be mindful. This has happened before. It can happen again. It's not like sin ended after the Tower of Babel with all these new languages. Like with the people groups uh, organized, okay, you speak this language, you speak this language, we're going to go this way now. And they went to go live their lives in sin because that's how people work. God wasn't trying to solve the problem of sin with this, but he was solving the problem of humanity being united to cause greater evil by working as one. And we'll move on from there to verses 10 through 26. 
These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Apashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Apashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Apashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Apashad lived after he fathered Shelah 400 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, as you're following the story, you may kind of notice that humanity's collective ages are slowly dwindling down. Now, assuming that we are not that they are not meant to be representative of large terms of time and there are gaps between the supposed father-son cycle, then this starts to suggest and show a genetic collapse of humanity where our lifespans are reduced. There are several thoughts for why this happened, you know, including you know, the environments just being harsher, negative traits being passed down thanks to random mutations. Humans didn't need to live long enough to have dozens of offspring, or perhaps God himself shortened our lifespans directly. Regardless of which is true, we now live far shorter lives than the patriarchs. The fall of man into being sinful beings has had a direct effect on our bodies. Where once we were fit for eternity, now we live in turmoil and strife, both physically and spiritually. Yet there is still hope. These genealogies can be grating and make us roll our eyes like, do I really have to read this again? Oh, what are those names? They mean nothing to me. There's still hope, but they serve an immensely important role in showing that God has kept his promises to us, even when humanity refused to love him. Without a genealogy like this, we do not have the record, unbroken record of the promise that will lead to Jesus Christ. That's why these matter, not only for the Israelites at that point in time to know where they came from, to help us now understand where we came from, but to understand where Jesus came from and how the promise would be fulfilled. So we'll finish off today in verses 27 through 32. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the mother of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his, his, son, his son Abram's wife, and they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And here we get our first glimpse into Abram and his family. As far as we see here, and as far as we can tell later, there is nothing special about him over any other human being on earth. But God will have different plans for him in the coming chapters. And that's to set you up for later, because we are done with this part of Genesis. Moving on, we'll be going to 12, maybe 13, depending on how I feel. Uh, just hate to be like that, but like, like things change, plans change. So with all that in mind, uh, please, if you had a chance, just leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. 
If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries Podcasting Network. You can contact me at letnothingmoviepodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you on accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you. Hey guys, are you interested in podcasting but don't know where to go? Well, check out Zencaster.com and go ahead and make an account there and use special promo code Let Nothing Move You, all caps. That way you can get 30% off of your next deal to go ahead and set things up so you can figure out how to edit stuff using Zencaster.com to host your stuff to get things done there. So check out Zencaster.com, use special promo code Let Nothing Move You. All right, see ya.